Esther made queen. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when a father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he pro provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take um, with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested and Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. 
she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Olaf, thanks for, thanks for reading that to us. Good evening, everyone. Um, shall I pray for us as we look at God's word together? Father, you are you're trustworthy and true, and your word is trustworthy and true. So, Lord, as, as we look at it together, may the words of, of my mouth and the, the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strong rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. He'd never forget the day they took her. She was so beautiful, whole of her life ahead of her. And since her mother and father had died, he'd, he'd raised her as his own child, taking care of her, trying to keep her safe, because, well, in a city like Susie, you couldn't be too careful. And when the royal edict had gone out, he'd, he'd feared the worst, but, but nothing had prepared him for the day when the knock came at the door, and they'd come for her, and there was nothing at all that he could do about it. She'd looked at him pleadingly, trusting that he'd know what to do, because he always had. But he could think of nothing, and as they led her away, all he could think to do was to whisper in her ear, whatever you do, don't tell them who you are. Well, welcome to the frightening world of Esther, chapter 2. As David was explaining to us last week, Esther's a puzzling book, isn't it? Full of all sorts of apparent contradictions, puzzling. It's hard to, to know, how do you read it? Well, it's, it's a history book, 
It's a book about real people caught up in real events. It's about 500 BC, and we're at one of the lowest points in the Old Testament story of God's people, in the heart of the all-conquering Persian Empire. This is a history book, but it's also a wisdom book. And so it's, it's written to help believers then and believers now to, to know how to live in a confusing, immoral, frequently frightening world where, where how things look and, and how they really are aren't, aren't always the same thing. And where the right decision often isn't obvious or easy. So if you're a Christian believer here this evening, trusting the God who's revealed himself in Jesus, then this book of Esther has, has important things to teach us about who we are as God's people and, and how we're to live in the light of that. And if you're here visiting tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, well, welcome. It's great that you're here. And I hope that you'll see too that this ancient book has important things to say about what our world is like and what it might mean for you to trust yourself to the God of the Bible, to, to count yourself as one of his people. So let's look at Esther chapter 2 together, shall we? Let's dive in, and I want us to see two things this evening. And the first is that, well, God's people will sometimes find themselves a weak and vulnerable people trying to survive in a callous world. Last week in chapter one, if you were here, we were introduced to the Persian kingdom, to its great power, the vast stretch of its rule, and to its lavish generosity. Here's a kingdom that, that promises you, you the world, a kingdom you'd be crazy not to give your life to. But we're also shown its laughable fragility, and how quickly it can turn hostile if you question the story it's telling about itself. And now this week, in chapter 2, we see how power gets used in this kingdom. And, well, surprise, surprise, it's to satisfy the desires of the powerful. If you remember from last week, Queen Vashti's been cancelled for daring to say no to the king. She's gone for good. And in verse 2, the king's advisors have a brilliant idea to fill the gap. A huge Miss Persia contest, if you like. You can imagine the conversation. Oh, your, your majesty, let's gather all the most beautiful young girls from across the empire, and whichever pleases the king best in bed, she'll be the one crown queen. And you see, the end of verse 4, we're told, this advice appealed to the king. That's a surprise, isn't it? And this plan shows us so much about this kingdom where what counts is how beautiful a girl can make herself. See how often we're told through the passage about the beautiful young women and their beauty treatments? I mean, just glance across at, at verse 12 and see the multi-million pound beauty industry that's been built around all this. You see that? The 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics, because only beautiful people count in this kingdom. And do you see how it's all built on exploitation? 
young girls, gratifying the lusts of a powerful man. Because however it's marketed, this beauty pageant, well, it's really a sordid sex contest, isn't it? Where, where whoever performs best will get on and end of verse 14, if you don't measure up, you'll be pretty quickly discarded. And so aren't you thankful that you, you don't live in a callous world like this? I mean, aren't we so thankful that we don't have whole industries, TV shows, magazines, based around competing to be the most beautiful or the most sexually alluring? Aren't we thankful that we don't have powerful leaders in politics or business or Hollywood or sport or sometimes even the church who will exploit their position to abuse the vulnerable, who they know are dependent on them to get on. I mean, as, as we think about the children and the teenagers in our church, just imagine if they had to grow up in a world shaped by sex and power like that. Which brings us back to where we started. Because in the middle of all this, our story zooms in, did you notice, on just one family... As verse 5, we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. And notice what we're told about him. The people he belongs to. Mordecai, we're told, is a Jew with a very particular family line. He's part of the people God chose. The people he chose way back with Abraham. The people God had called and grown and cared for. The people God had promised to use to rescue his lost world. Only as God's people step into our story here, how do we find them? Weak and vulnerable. Verse 6, living in exile. In fact, it couldn't actually stress that more strongly. The, the NIV, it kind of smooths it out. But, but translated literally, verse 6 tells us that Mordecai's exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles who'd been exiled with Jehoiakim, whom King Nebuchadnezzar had exiled. So we get the point, don't we? God's people are foreigners, far from home, a marginalized people, vulnerable to the whims of those who call the shots. And then we're shown just how weak and vulnerable as Mordecai's adopted daughter, Esther, who, it seems in verse 7, has the misfortune to be attractive. Verse 8 is taken for the king's pleasure. And there's nothing whatsoever that Mordecai can do about it. There's nothing Esther can do except, well, keep her head down and go with the flow. And how are you meant to respond when you're put in a position like that? I mean, what are we meant to make of Mordecai's suggestion in, in, in verse 10 that, that Esther keep her identity secret? It hints at how hostile this kingdom might be to those who won't fit in, who dare to be identified as one of God's people. But is it the right thing to do to encourage Esther to play along, to blend in, to be assimilated, I mean, hold on, aren't, aren't God's people meant to stand up and be distinctive? Aren't they actually meant to be more like that, that other Old Testament exile, Daniel, who, who proudly own their identity, say no to the culture, stick their neck out? 
What are we to make of how Esther seems to well, throw herself into it all? Verse, verse 9, embracing all the beauty treatments and the special food. Working hard to learn how to be really alluring. Being, in fact, the exact opposite of brave Queen Vashti, who we saw in, in chapter 1 and verse 15, doing exactly what she's told to please the king. What are we to make of all that? Is Esther right to hide who she is? To compromise? To capitulate? And you notice the narrator doesn't tell us. And some earlier readers of the book, they found that so unsettling that they actually added extra bits into the text just, just to make it really clear how much Esther hated it all. But God's word doesn't tell us that. We just don't know. Maybe she did hate it. Or maybe she got swept along by it all. A young girl dazzled by all the glamour and the excitement. Mightn't you have been? What we are shown is how little choice she seemed to have. How weak and vulnerable she was. Just a pawn in a game played for the pleasure of the powerful. Trying to survive in a callous world. Where God and his values seem nowhere to be seen. What should God's people do when they find themselves up to their necks in a world like that? When should you, you risk it all and, and speak up? And when should you keep your head down? When is it okay to compromise what you believe to avoid being ridiculed at school or losing your job at work? And when's it not? And is there any hope left for you if you have? Esther chapter 2 is showing us that sometimes that's where God's people will find themselves. A weak and vulnerable people trying to survive in a callous world. I imagine that's the situation so many of our brothers and sisters are in right now in Russia, in China, in much of the Middle East. And maybe it's the situation we'll increasingly find ourselves in as our culture becomes ever more hostile to the Christian faith. So is there any hope if that's where we find ourselves? When we feel weak and vulnerable and even compromised and we know that we're not a fearless Daniel? Yeah, there is. Because secondly, this passage shows us that God's people are also a loved and favored people included in a gracious rescue plan. Remember what David told us last week, that, that in this book where, where God's name is never once mentioned, and it can look like he's nowhere, the more you read it, you start to realize that actually he's everywhere. And it turns out that that's true here, even in the heart of the harem, where, where the only things that seem to be worshipped are beauty and performance. Notice what happens as Esther tries to survive in that world. As she's handed over to Haggai, the head honcho. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. And then after she's completed her beauty regimen and followed his every suggestion, when the time finally comes for her night with the king, what happens? Verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther 
more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And you might think, so what? So, so she played the game. She made herself desirable to powerful men, and she came out on top. Is that really the message I meant to take from this passage and pass on to my seven-year-old daughter at home? I don't think so. Because I think that little word favor is dropped in there to make her sit up and look again. You see, sometimes words and phrases, they, they can seem like, something, like nothing special, but to the right ears, they come loaded with meaning. So let me give you a silly example. If I said to you, every little helps, I'd be surprised if, if someone in the room wasn't thinking, what? Tesco. Some people, it'll, it'll pass us right by, but for the discerning shopper, <laughs> your mind's right there, isn't it? You can't help but think of it. And if you're an Old Testament reader of this passage, I think that's what's supposed to happen when you keep well, bumping into this little word, favor. Because it's a God word. In Hebrew, it's something like chesed, and it's a word used over and over throughout the Old Testament to describe the Lord God himself. In our passage, it's translated favor, but it's actually much, much bigger than that. It speaks of God's undeserved kindness and loyal love, his unwavering covenant commitment to rescue and protect the people that he's pledged himself to. We often translate it steadfast love, or as the song we sometimes sing puts it, his loving kindness. If you remember, it's how the Lord described himself when he revealed his glory to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's how the Psalms describe God over a hundred times. We, we started our service with one of them. And so what's it doing in the middle of a Miss Persia contest? Well, I think it's to show that even here, all the way out in exile in Persia, after God's people have got it wrong in so many ways, when They've got it so wrong that surely God must have abandoned them this time. In a place where God's people are so frightened that they try to keep their allegiance to him secret. In fact, even in the heart of the harem where it's laughable to think that God might be there, he is. Never mentioned, but still there. Still full of gracious unwavering chesed love and still working to rescue and keep his undeserving people. And so here, even amongst all the moral murkiness, behind the fickle favor of a head eunuch and a vain king, we're being given the glimpse of something different. The only favor that really counts. Not the favor of the beautiful, the influential, the powerful, not a favor that we can win through our performance. No, we're being shown that despite appearances, 
God's people, even when we feel most weak and vulnerable, are always a loved and favored people. Because we're loved and favored by the only king who really counts. And maybe you think, really? Darren, are you sure? It feels like there's a lot riding on just one word. But that's because there is. Everything's riding on it. More than Esther can ever imagine. Because God hasn't given up on his people or the gracious plan of salvation that he's working out through them. And so Esther the pawn finds herself unexpectedly promoted to queen, surprisingly saved, and then placed in just the right position we're going to see in future weeks for God to use to extend his gracious rescue plan across the whole known world. That's what's coming in future chapters. But there's a hint of it right here. Because do you notice how the chapter ends? With this funny epilogue. You might expect it to end at verse 18 with, with King Xerxes choosing Esther and then displaying his generosity the way kings do by throwing another party and giving everyone an extra bank holiday. But it doesn't end there because he's not the king we're meant to notice. So instead, verse 21, we find ourselves at the king's gate where these guys, Bigthana and Teresh, they're, they're great names, aren't they? You know they're baddies straight away. And, and there they are, plotting to kill the king. And now suddenly it's the most powerful man in the world who's vulnerable. Only these two goons, they just happen to be overheard by Mordecai, who just happens to be related to the new queen. And so, verse 22, Mordecai tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and the chapter ends with poor old Big Thana and Teresh being strung up on poles in what seems like just another brutal display of what happens if you step out of line in this kingdom. Only amid that king's cruelty... I don't think we're meant to miss another king's kindness. One whose gracious favor, whose loyal chesed love towards his people has put Esther just where she needs to be so that a word can come through her to rescue even a callous, self-serving king from certain death. Because if you remember, that's how from the start God had promised Abraham it would be a people chosen to bring saving blessing to all peoples, even enemy ones. Because that's the kind of gracious king he is. And that's the pattern for how he works. And seeing glimpses of it here in Esther gets us ready for when that grace was put on full display. On the day when that true king stepped into our callous world, not full of self-serving power, but himself weak and vulnerable. When the one infinitely loved and favored by his father from all eternity was the one who was taken and abused and strung up on a pole in a gracious rescue plan that offers salvation 
even to us, his enemies. When Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul tells us, of whom I am the worst. And you see, the pattern's the same because it's the same king at work, full of the same loving kindness, the same gracious, rescuing love and favor. And seeing that tonight in Cambridge, doesn't it help us to trust him? Even when the world around us looks frighteningly callous at times, and and as God's people, we feel weak and vulnerable and sometimes even compromised. When God himself seems totally absent and we've no clue how all the mess that's happening can possibly be part of his plan, we can trust him, knowing that this king won't abandon his people, that his favor is never fickle. We can trust the saving purposes he's included us in in Christ. And we can be ready to hold out that same rescue plan to others. To tell even the most unlikely people about this God's loving kindness. Trusting that, well, just maybe, that's why he's put us where we find ourselves. Not by chance, but by his gracious fatherly hands. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, our world is confusing in in so many ways and when we look at our own hearts, we feel very weak. We feel often conflicted. We're aware of, of how often we go wrong. And then, Lord, we look to you and we see you full of loving kindness, totally trustworthy, totally committed to rescuing your people. Lord, how we love you. How we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.